Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we thank you that we can do so, that we can do so in peace and freedom. And we pray that you will speak to us in the sense that you will teach us what each of us individually needs to know from you this morning. And will you increase our confidence and trust in you because we hear your word this morning and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A thousand years before Jesus was born, in the time of King Saul of Israel, there was a town called Nob, about five miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was basically a church town, for that was where the tabernacle of the Lord was located at that time. It was staffed by a chief priest with 85 priests and their families assisting him. It was a place for worship, for offerings, for finding God's forgiveness and for asking direction from the Lord. And then, one day, a detachment of the army led by a foreigner who was not himself a soldier arrived and slaughtered everybody men, women, children, oxen, sheep, donkeys. No one was spared. And nobody really knew why. But it was an event that burned in the mind of the man who was later to become king of Israel because he felt in some way responsible for it. At the time of the massacre, that man, David, was on the run from King Saul. For David had already been anointed by the prophet to be the next king of Israel. And he was the obvious choice. He was a strong military commander who quickly gained people's confidence and loyalty. And he loved God. And so the reigning king had to stop his rise to power. David was on the run after narrowly escaping death from that king. But Where should he go? He was alone. He had no provisions. He had no weapons. So he went where he knew he would be accepted. He went to the house of God at Nob. The priest there, Ahimelech, knew David. He had more than once asked the Lord to help him. And now David needed help more than ever. David's immediate need was for provisions and weapons. He knew that the great sword that he had won from Goliath when he was a young man was located and stored in that tabernacle and he hoped there would be food there. As it happened, the only food there turned out to be food that had already been consecrated to the Lord. Twelve loaves, one for each of the tribes of Israel, set out on a special table and dedicated to the Lord. And... uh, So to protect Ahimelech, David did not tell him that he was fleeing from Saul, only that his mission was secret and that he had come from Saul. Ahimelech allowed him to take the five sacred loaves that he had requested. And David also took the sword of Goliath and went on his way. But he went with a troubled heart. For while with Ahimelech, he had seen a foreigner, Saul's chief herdsman, a man from Edom, 
a nation that had always meant trouble for Israel. Why was Doeg there? David soon found out, for not long afterwards he heard news of the massacre of the priests and he knew that Doeg must have betrayed him, which of course he had. Saul, terribly insecure in his kingship, had accused his senior officials of hiding David's sedition from him. Nobody had told him where David was and Saul suspected they were all disloyal to him. In the general uneasiness that followed, Doeg spoke up. I saw David go to Ahimelech and he asked the Lord direction for him and gave him provisions and a sword. That was enough for Saul. He arrested Ahimelech, interrogated him, dismissed his account as all lies and ordered him, his officers to execute him. But no Hebrew would raise his hand against a priest whom the Lord had anointed and they all refused to obey Saul's command. So Saul ordered the foreigner to do it, which he did. And then he led the soldiers to destroy all the priests at Nob. And so you see why David blamed himself. But as it turned out, just one of Abimelech's of Ahimelech's sons escaped the massacre and fled to David who by now was gathering men about him. That son, Abiathar, was himself a priest and he brought with him the means by which they could ask the Lord for direction, for guidance. And that was the most valuable thing that David could have wished for. David, as you know, in due course, in God's time, after more than eight years on the run, did become king. And in his kingship, in some ways, he became a symbol of the promised eternal king, whom we know is Jesus. And even at this early stage, when David was anointed but not enthroned, he acted as Jesus would have done and as he would have us do. He admitted his part in the tragedy that had befallen the family of Abiathar and he promised Abiathar salvation if he would trust him. He said, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me. And so long as he trusted David, Abiathar was safe. And when David did become king, Abiathar became high priest along with Zadok. But David never forgot. And for him, Doeg was the symbol of evil, deceit and treachery. And that's what he wrote Psalm 52 about, the power of evil. To David, Doeg epitomises the man who loves what is evil, who is absolutely full of himself and above all doesn't give a brass razoo for what God thinks of him. He's a man who schemes against others for his own advantage even if it means others are destroyed. He has no love for the truth. He's delighted when people believe his lies. Everything he does and everything he says is for his own benefit.
And that's the first situation that the psalm asks us to consider. That's what that little word selah means. Stop a minute and think about that. So let's think about that. Have you ever had to live with a physically or emotionally oppressive person? Some of you know what life is like under an uncaring or oppressive employer, an abusive spouse, or in a relationship with a manipulative person. This is the situation that we're reading about in Psalm 52. Every line in those first four verses profiles the abuse of power. If you've been hurt like that, read on. This man is just evil. God hates that. Do you know what God really hates? The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 6, I'll read it to you. There are six things the Lord hates, seven things that he detests. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness that pours out lies, and a person who sows discord in a family. Seven things the Lord detests. Pretty well sums it up. This is the power of evil. Deceit, promotion of self, boastfulness, lies, and you hear it in their words. Now, who do we know who is like that? You can probably think of public figures, past or even present, who fit some parts or even all of that description. I heard one of them on the news on television last night. Blatantly lying to us about what had happened. But what lies behind this is the Satan, the evil one himself. For as the scripture says, Satan is the father of lies. At the first he lied to Eve. And that began the destruction of our whole race. And then you remember that he tried to deceive our Lord in the wilderness by misquoting God's own word to him. Of course, he was totally unsuccessful. But Satan seeks the destruction of God's people. He tried to destroy the baby Jesus through Herod. He thought he had succeeded when he entered into his servant Judas and Jesus was betrayed. Again in that he failed. And now, though he's been decisively defeated at the cross, Satan still tries to destroy God's people. When the gospel is preached, he snatches away the good seed from the minds of some of the hearers. And when the seed does take root, he's constantly, as Peter says, looking for someone to devour. When he's successful, his aim is there, everlasting destruction. In that way, he is the archetypal killer. Jesus summed him up like this in John 8. He said, There are leaders in our nation, Jesus said, There are leaders in our nation who belong to their father, the devil, and they want to carry out their father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not hold to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so you see, Satan is the father of people like Doeg, 
and they are often in places of influence. The old prophet Micah told the people of Israel, there are rulers of Israel who hate good and love evil. And nothing changes in this world. The Bible teaches us that the people who follow this deceptive leader, even though he's so powerful, have only one end, destruction. As Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to them. So the second thing that we are asked to think about in verses 4 and following is that this man and the evil power that loses, uses him is living in a fool's paradise. There is judgment coming that he cannot escape and it will be violent. Look at verse 5. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. And it's everlasting. Make no mistake, this man, everyone like him and their father will come to the same destruction that they wanted for people. Jesus described their end in Matthew 25 as the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his messengers. But the good thing is that everyone who now suffers at the hands of men like that will see the victory of God, the victory that was won at the cross. There the Satan considered that he had at last destroyed the only one who could hope to save the human race, and but at that very point he was defeated. It's a theme throughout the scriptures. When evil seems supreme, then God triumphs. When evil seems supreme, then God triumphs. In Noah's time, evil reigned supreme and men laughed at the warnings and the offer of salvation. And we read, and then the flood came and destroyed them all. When God's people were at the end of their endurance as slaves in Egypt, Moses was born to deliver them. When Israel was about to be overrun by the Assyrian army, when all hope was lost except hope in God, then God suddenly and supernaturally destroyed that army. And on Jesus' cross of shame and humiliation and defeat, Satan's plan and power were all destroyed. There God, as the scripture says, disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. All that power, and yet they are a joke to God. 3,000 years ago we were told that the powers of this world want to destroy God's influence in the world, and they still do. But that was just a joke to the one who made the earth, the heavens, the universe and all that lies beyond. In Psalm 2, you know it, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break free from their chains, they say. Let us throw off their ropes. 
the one on the throne in heaven laughs the Lord scoffs at them remember that when everything seems to be falling under the machinations of wicked men and women remember that he who sits in the heavens laughs at them see verse 6 in our psalm the righteous will see and fear they will laugh at him saying here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others the righteous will see and fear the fear here is awe at the power of God to overrule the greatest of human powers and the great power of the prince of the power of the air, the devil. But the laughter here is the laughter of victory. God was right after all. His promises never fail. The obvious question for us is, where are we positioned in all of this? We live in a world run by the powers that do not acknowledge God, whose words you can't trust and who seek power at whatever cost. Are you able to identify instead with the Lord who laughs at them? For the moment, it's no laughing matter. But looked at from above, their end is determined and our salvation has been secured. They are destined for the eternal fire prepared for the devil and all his messengers. And so we come to verse 8 with the great contrast. We began with a realistic view of how things are in this world that lies in the power of the evil one. But we know that the gospel breaks the power of Satan in the life of the believer. Those first preachers of the gospel who went out into all the world as we read in the reading from Acts, they knew that they were turning people, I quote them, they were turning people from the power of Satan to God. That was what the gospel was doing, turning people from the power of Satan to God. And so that has real meaning for our present experience. Here's David, still under threat from a thoroughly evil man, and yet he can say, I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. Why? Because he trusts that God's love never fails. How does he know that? Well... He has the evidence of God at work in the history of his people. He never failed them. And since he did not fail in the past, why should he fail in the future? You see in verse 9, he praises God for what he has done in the past. Verse 9, I will praise you forever for what you have done. That's his evidence for saying that he will continue to do the same in the future. He's promised persecuted Christians in Ethiopia clung to the promise in Hebrews 13:8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever the image of the olive tree that's instructive we still consider it as an emblem of peace and friendship you remember the story of Noah as the flood began to recede to see whether there was dry land he sends out the dove and the dove comes back with an olive leaf in its beak peace with God 
We still talk about holding out the olive branch to someone as a sign of reconciliation and peace. For the ancient Hebrews, the olive tree meant it was long-lived, it was hard to kill, it was a source of blessing, it was a place for shelter and for meditation. David, despite all the threats that surround him, he's an olive tree full of sap and he's planted in the house of the Lord in the safest place possible. Unlike the wicked man in verse 5, he will never be uprooted. Unlike that wicked man, his trust is in God's unfailing love which is eternal. In contrast to the worldling, who trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. So that's David's situation now. That's how he's thinking and feeling. But what of the future? Well, that's also in verse 9. The first phrase looked back to what God had done and gave him reassurance for the present. The second phrase looks forward in hope. In your name I will hope for your name is good I will praise you in the presence of your saints he hopes in the name of God because he knows that God's name is good what's that mean well it's just like we would say I'll put my name to that proposal meaning I'll support that I'll stake my reputation on that so God's name just represents him he's in it The name represents the authority of the person and here it's God's name. You can trust it absolutely. And despite his present troubles, he's confident that he will live to praise God in the presence of his saints. In other words, the future for him is secure. He'll be free to assemble with God's people to praise God once again that would be very meaningful if you were a Christian in Gaza today or in so many countries where they they would kill you if you assembled in the name of God with God's people or even in Bethlehem today where Christians are at their wits end as a Christian leader very recently said right now we are working intensely on prayer sessions and readings holding on to God because there is no one else because he is always faithful and the time will certainly come when once again we can praise him in the assembly of his people in peace and freedom to which we all look forward let's thank the Lord let's pray together our heavenly father we are surrounded by evil we do live in a world where death and destruction seem to reign supreme we do live in a world where evil men seem to want power at any price we live in a world lord where many people do not know where to turn father for those who don't know you will you turn your hearts to eternal things to the name of the lord jesus For those who do know you, Lord, yet still continue to suffer at the hands of evil men and women, we pray that their trust may continue in you, knowing that you have always been faithful in the past 
and that in the end you will bring your faithful people to joy and peace and glory as we assemble together before your throne and see the victory of the cross worked out throughout this world and into eternity. And we pray it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.